thanks, Kevin. Um, when you said a number of developments um, happening in British politics and world politics, I had to quickly go to my phone just in case I'd missed something that, um, you know, I didn't know what Kevin was referring to. But I think we're, I think we're all pretty safe for the uh, political report. So hopefully I'm not going to miss some huge uh, event um, that you all know about and I don't. Okay, so I'm going to begin um, really with tanks. And I know we um, began last week with tanks, uh, but um, much to my non-surprise, um, I'm not saying the timing, but much to my non-surprise, uh, what we've had it is, is an announcement uh, from Germany uh, that it will be delivering tanks. And we've also had an announcement following uh, Germany's uh, announcement, but clearly coordinated uh, diplomatically uh, that the United States would be um, sending tanks um, as well. So what we have is 31 um, Abraham's, uh, Abraham tanks um, from the United States. Now, what is interesting about them is that uh, that is not going to come out of the existing 8,000 um, um, stock that the United States has got or the 3,500 uh, that it's got in storage. Uh, these 31 tanks are going to be new. They're going to be coming off the production line. Uh, I don't know how long a tank uh, takes to make, but one would have thought a week or two or three or four. And uh, what uh, these tanks are not going to have is uh, the latest electronic uh, gizmos or uh, apparently, and I'm, I'm, I, if someone knows more than I do about uh, uranium-strengthened armour, uh, please pipe up. I've heard of depleted uranium in terms of um, shells. Uh, we all know about that if we're old enough uh, from the Gulf uh, War, and I presume that still litters, um, you know, the deserts in uh, Iraq. Uh, so these are going to be slightly, um, how should I put it, um, less uh, potent um, uh, M1 tanks. Um, Germany, meanwhile, has committed to supplying 14 uh, Leopard 2 uh, tanks. And of course, we had uh, the announcement prior to this, which is why we knew uh, that it would soon happen in terms of America and uh, Germany. We've already had the announcement of 14 British um, Challenger 2 uh, tanks. Now, these tanks, when all things are said and done, uh, are pretty similar. Uh, these are, um, you know, frontline main battle tanks. They're heavy. Um, the uh, American M1 is faster. And one would gather, um, you know, from the publicity, um, also has stronger armor. Um, but, it, but all in all, um, they're, they're pretty much um, uh, similar. True. Uh, the American tank uh, uses jet fuel uh, as opposed to diesel, and apparently uh, it's harder to maintain. Either way, uh, there's no doubt uh, that they are vastly superior uh, compared with uh, old Soviet era uh, T-72s and T-74s. That cannot be said, though. Um, about the latest Russian equipment, and I think the latest Russian tank, which is being deployed in what numbers, where, and all the rest of it, uh, that's the T-10. Uh, this is, uh, again, uh, I don't know what generation uh, battle tank, uh, but this is up there along with the Challenger 2, the Leopard 2, and uh, the M1. Now, okay, that's not very many uh, tanks, uh, is it? But what we also have is the expectation, certainly of Poland. Remember, Poland was promising to um, basically put two fingers up to Germany uh, and any attempt to block its export of its 
uh, um, leopard twos. But we're also told that other countries such as, for example, the Netherlands, I've got Portugal, I've got Austria, I've got Spain uh, um, on my uh, list. And a lot of these countries have got uh, um, leopard twos and a lot of them actually have got leopard twos in storage. So my guess would be uh, that uh, it would be the ones in storage uh, that would be upgraded, you know, uh, I should put it, given a once over uh, and then put on a train or a plane uh, over to uh, the Ukraine. Uh, either way, uh, the reports that I've read uh, add that up in total uh, to something like 100 um, modern um, uh, tanks. Uh, now that's vastly short, of uh, the 300 minimum uh, tanks uh, that Ukraine has been uh, demanding. Um, what that means uh, militarily, I'm not sure. I would have thought uh, as an armchair general uh, that 100 tanks would be enough uh, to make a breakthrough uh, on one front, uh, certainly not two uh, fronts. And what needs to be emphasized uh, in terms of either a Russian spring offensive or Ukrainian spring offensive, is that if you do use uh, tanks, uh, they need backup. Uh, you don't just send uh, tanks into battle as the British did when they first used them. I don't know what the battle was, uh, but in World War I, uh, when they put their tanks um, um, you know, against German trenches, they were able to cut through um, but as they uh, carried on, um, loads of them started to break down and um, soon actually the advance uh, that they were responsible for uh, was reversed and it was actually the British French um, who lost ground. Either way, uh, tanks need backup in terms of logistics, you've got to supply them with fuel, uh, not least the M1 with very special uh, fuel. You've got to supply them with more ammunition um, and you've got to make sure that it's uh, uh, same ammunition that, uh, um, that is designed for that particular tank. So the Challenger 2 has its own particular um, um, munitions, whereas uh, the M1 and the Leopard 2 is standard NATO uh, stuff. But you've also got to back that up with infantry and hence the significance of um, armored vehicles and Bradleys that the, uh, the United States uh, is supplying. In other words, you've got to get the troops safely, if you can, to the front line. Uh, and that's what the other armor is about. And you've also got to set up the front line before the tanks go in uh, with an artillery uh, uh, barrage. Uh, hence NATO delivery of howitzers and uh, uh, other uh, artillery pieces. But you've also got to have air cover. That will be at the moment uh, drones. Uh, I don't know how uh, well armored uh, Leopard 2s and um, M1s and Challengers are uh, when it comes to attack from above. Uh, I have seen some modified uh, leopard twos that clearly are um, at least equipped to deal with above, i.e. they've got some sort of uh, pyramid uh, protection uh, over their turrets. As we know, uh, with the Soviet era uh, tanks that the Russian army is using, they're particularly vulnerable uh, when it comes to their turrets of uh, a missile, one of these shoulder launch missiles going up and going down and bang. Uh, going into the turret, but it's also true from attack uh, with uh, uh, drones. Also, you need backup in terms of electronic uh, warfare. You know, is the other side listening into you? Are they using what they're listening into uh, to target missiles, you know, with pinpoint accuracy um, on one tank uh, after the other? So it has to be a, sport, a full spectrum um, 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 question. Uh, if you're going to have a successful uh, uh, offensive. Um, so we also have the possibility, who knows when, 
uh, but I think it's a matter of time uh, before uh, Ukraine gets its uh, F-16s. This is a fourth generation um, aircraft produced on a big scale uh, by the United States. I think it's Lockheed uh, that's the main manufacturer. They're still making them. Uh, they're making an upgraded version of the X, uh, F-16, but also a lot of air forces that the United States supplied with these aircraft, including the US uh, Air Force, are retiring them. So there's plenty of surplus uh, for Ukraine, and I suspect they will get them sooner rather than later. What other air forces are aspiring to now is fifth generation uh, fighter aircraft. And that's, of course, the F-35, which I don't know. I can't remember what price tag it comes in uh, with, except it's enormous. Uh, these are incredibly sophisticated stealth fighters, vertical takeoff and, and landing, uh, very, very sophisticated um, uh, electronics. Um, but yeah, we're not talking about one or two or 10 or 20 million each. Uh, we're talking about a price tag uh, even beyond, uh, beyond that. So yeah, um, Zelensky um, has been calling for F-16s. And as I said, there are plenty available in the United States, but also now uh, in Europe uh, and not just Western Europe, uh, but also Eastern Europe. And I'm sure they will come um, soon. Now, what effect uh, uh, armor has and what effect uh, F-16s have uh, on the battlefront? That's an open question. And uh, all sorts of, um, you know, uh, defense chiefs and generals will be looking at the fighting uh, to see, you know, how effective, um, you know, um, what used to be the main deliverer of shock and awe uh, on the battlefield, how effective it is now in the age of drone warfare and uh, end laws, you know, uh, these um, shoulder launched um, um, anti-tank uh, uh, missiles. So you could, in, you could be in a situation uh, of where the prestige of uh, M1s and Challenger 2s and Leopard 2s takes a nosedive and they are regarded, you know, within a year or two as the equivalent of the cavalry uh, after 1914. We wait and see, and I suspect the manufacturers and the generals will be doing uh, exactly uh, the same thing. So as I said, uh, both sides uh, in this Ukraine war are talking about some sort of spring offensive. Of course, it's true uh, that the war has continued throughout winter. Uh, but what we have in the spring uh, is the promise, the threat, call it whatever you will, of uh, large numbers of uh, conscripted uh, Russian uh, lads uh, who've been trained up as in, and instead of pushing straight in uh, to the Ukraine theater, uh, they've been held back and trained up. Uh, how effective they will be, I don't uh, know. It depends on what kit and equipment they're given. It also depends on what, you know, the level of morale uh, amongst these troops uh, 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 is. Okay, but... Uh, you know, talking about 100 tanks, I think the main question here uh, at the moment, until we get up into the three, four, 500 uh, tanks being supplied, and then an equivalent number of F-16 uh, fighter planes uh, being supplied, really the significance of this week's news is diplomatic, is political, and, and mainly what it's about, um, as the article by Dan Lazar uh, says it uh, in this week's work in this week's weekly worker is the effective uh, death of Os Ostpolitik, uh, the um, eastern orientation of uh, Germany uh, that goes back to Willy Brandt and the orientation of German industry uh, to eastern supplies of raw material, not just gas and oil, but mainly. Uh, gas and oil, hence um, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream uh, 2. And in terms of German industry, steel, chemicals, 
cars, uh, everything. It, it's been reliant on the supplier in the East. Now, how competitive uh, uh, Germany will be without that Eastern uh, orientation uh, remains to be seen. All I would say that, it, that apart from Ukraine and Russia itself, uh, the country that's borne uh, the biggest burden uh, when it comes to the Ukraine war isn't the United States, even though it's been supplying the bulk of equipment, it's Germany. And we need to understand it not in a narrow way, but one would, one would expect uh, uh, in the United States its arms manufacturers uh, to be experiencing a boom um, that in terms of orders coming in, uh, both from the United States in order to supply directly uh, to Ukraine, there will be a boom going on there. But also, uh, given um, the rise in um, defence, so-called arms spending uh, in Europe, uh, the same uh, will apply. In other words, uh, yes, Germany uh, produces its own tank, but when it comes to aircraft, really uh, the United States is unmatched. So you do have uh, the Tornado, which again is, you know, I think fourth generation on its way out. So you have a British, French, Swedish um, air, air industry, but the main one when it comes to NATO is uh, the United States and they will be expecting lots of orders and lots of money uh, coming in. But in terms of um, uh, Germany, I don't know what the economic impact um, is. I haven't read uh, any statistics other than to say uh, it will be uh, very uh, uh, significant. And of course, what we've had um, in terms of uh, Russia, this is the um, uh, Russian ambassador in Washington, D.C., uh, what's his name again? Anatoly Anatov. Um, basically, the threat is being that this is a blatant provocation uh, by Germany when it comes to Moscow. Uh, the presence of uh, Leopard 2s uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine, uh, pictures of Leopard 2s will have an important impact on public opinion uh, uh, in Russia. I, I think there's no doubt about that uh, whatsoever. But also, I thought this week, um, it's also worth quoting because we've been arguing from the beginning of the Ukraine war, we shouldn't just view the Ukraine war as uh, evil Putin invades democratic um, Ukraine. Um, and uh, this is just somehow uh, a Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict. It's clear, even under international law, for what, for what that counts, that what we've got is a NATO-Russian uh, war. The fact that this equipment uh, that we've just been talking about and all the other equipment that's been supplied before uh, February uh, 22, but uh, equipment that has been supplied even before that, the fact that what we've got is this is a donation um, is something um, that's uh, um, proof under international law that you're an actual participant uh, in this war. Hence the significance in World War II um, of America uh, coming to a lend-lease uh, agreement with Great Britain. So America supplied, for example, uh, ships uh, to Britain so that it could transport grain, food, munitions, oil, whatever, uh, to Britain. But it, it supplied them on the basis that America gets money back. And I can't remember the date. Was it 1988 when the debt was finally paid off? It was relatively recently. And what that was an indication of from America, um, you know, under Roosevelt is, well, we support Britain, but this is a commercial deal between two countries. We are not a participant. Uh, in the war against uh, uh, Germany. That was the significance of Lend-Lease. So the fact that these uh, M1s, Challengers, Leopards, uh, N-Laws, uh, Bradley fighting vehicles, uh, Howitzers, uh, you name it, huge amount of equipment that's been supplied is done gratis, uh, indicates, you know, just as I said, by law, 
that NATO is involved in a proxy uh, uh, war. But we've also made the argument that not only um, has the United States decided to take on Russia in Ukraine with the aim of uh, defeating uh, and degrading uh, the Russian Federation so it can't do anything like this again, quote, unquote, perhaps even fulfilling uh, the dreams of uh, Brzezinski, um, you know, the advisor to uh, Carter back in the, was it 70s, 80s, uh, that, you know, of breaking the Russian Federation uh, apart. That was the plan in his book, The Great Chess Game. He was going to break up the Soviet Union, not just into its Republican parts, uh, but also into a Siberian part, a European part, and a central part. So it's Russia itself uh, that he was aiming to break apart. But also we've been making the argument that if you want to understand this conflict, you need to understand it as the attempt to reboot global US hegemony, which isn't challenged uh, by the Russian Federation. Yes, the Russian Federation did have an awesome uh, reputation when it came to arms, and we should still very much um, respect its nuclear uh, uh, arms. But no, the main challenger, the only serious challenger uh, to US uh, hegemony uh, is China, not the European Union that's been thoroughly uh, subordinated, uh, thoroughly uh, integrated in behind uh, the United States. No, it's China, and China alone represents some sort of full-spectrum challenge uh, to U.S. hegemony. So before it rises uh, uh, of where it can directly uh, uh, challenge the United States, uh, the United States is intent, intent on a preemptive uh, action. And clearly, there's a number of possibilities. The most obvious one, as we speak today, is over Taiwan, which apparently the BBC keeps telling us that China uh, claims to be its own territory. News for the BBC, both Chinas, uh, that's Taiwan, China, and Beijing, China, or tai, uh, Taipei, China. There's never been a dispute in China um, that it's one country. Uh, and indeed, until the uh, Mao-Nixon rapprochement, um, you know, it was uh, Taipei that had the seat at the UN. Um, so uh, there's only one China that's been in you know, the international agreement all the way since 1949. So this, this idea that it's China that claims it as its territory, Actually, it's been the other way round. It's been Taipei, it's been uh, Taiwan that claims, you know, the 1.4 billion citizens of mainland China uh, as citizens of its uh, uh, government, as opposed to the illegitimate government uh, of the Communist Party of China stroke uh, People's Liberation um, um, Army. Hence the significance of the note that was leaked to the financial I'm a four-star general in charge of uh, US um, Air Mobility uh, Command. So I presume that's you know transporting large numbers of troops uh, from one part of the world uh, to another part of the world, um, you know, in uh, transport. Uh, uh, aircraft, you know, the sort of aircraft we saw taking off from um, a Kabul airport um, when the Taliban uh, uh, took over. But large numbers of troops can be moved from America or Europe um, to Asia or wherever uh, uh, under his um, uh, command. But he says, well, you know, be prepared um, for a war. Uh, between China and the United States in 2025. Uh, now, there have been previous leaks by people, you know, of a similar seniority um, who've talked about 2023. So this is a few years ago. Uh, others talk about 2027. I think we need to take those warnings seriously. Um, this isn't um, some idle uh, chit chat. 
uh, by generals. This is what the United States is preparing for. And the significance of it is that previously, uh, after the uh, Mao-Nixon rapprochement, what the United States maintained was something called strategic ambiguity, because they recognized that China was one, one country, one China, uh, but what they were ambiguous about was uh, whether they would defend Taiwan uh, if it was attacked uh, by mainland China, what they used to call red uh, uh, China. Uh, and so they used to keep it, um, well, we might or we might not. Well, it's becoming increasingly clear uh, that the ambiguity is going and what we're getting towards is an overt commitment uh, to taking on China if it decided uh, to um, try to, in their, in their language, liberate uh, um, Taiwan. Now, whether China would be well advised uh, to have a go uh, at doing that, I think that's another matter. I mean, I, I've expressed my uh, assessment of uh, Russia's efforts in Ukraine many, many times over. They, they, the Russians did far worse uh, than I ever expected. And I didn't think from the beginning that they would succeed in whatever their effort was. And uh, you know, my assessment still is that the, the attempt to overthrow the Zelensky uh, government. I didn't see them succeeding in doing that. I always thought there would be stiff resistance from Ukraine, just Ukraine, let alone because it would have uh, the backing uh, of uh, NATO, which is far more uh, economically advanced and rich uh, co than compared with the Russian Federation, uh, for, for example. But of course, if China did it, it not only has to secure air superiority, it has to secure command of the sea. And uh, up against uh, an American fleet, I'm very dubious. So I, I, I'm, I remain skeptical um, about 2025. 20, uh, um, nonetheless, it's clear that uh, uh, amongst the American military, uh, there's preparation going on precisely uh, to fight uh, such a war. And think about it from the point of view of a defeated China or a defeated Russia. Uh, what do they do uh, when the chips are down? What's their last weapon? Uh, nuclear. Um, hence the threats. Uh, by the former president of the Russian Federation, Medyev, remember him, uh, you know, in between, um, is it the sec second Putin term? That's my memory, um, when Putin served as prime minister. Anyway, moving on, um, we have um, killings, uh, raised temperature in Israel, Palestine, Jenin, Jerusalem, Gaza, all sorts of um, killings. Uh, uh, going on. Initially, um, Israeli forces um, hunting down members of uh, Islamic uh, Jihad. Um, BBC is very fond of explaining all this as a cycle of violence. And, it, you know, it, it basically is saying that this is all irrational. And so um, it, it's sort of a gangland sort of language. And that is, you know, if you shoot at me, I'm going to shoot at you. If you kill one of mine, I'm going to kill one of yours. Well, we need to put it in its proper historic context. And what we actually have, of course, with um, Zionism going back before the foundation of the state of Israel in 1948 is precisely a colonial project. And what you get with colonial projects, for some strange reason, uh, people who are being colonized hey, they resist. They actually resist their land being taken over and they resist um, being pushed out of the, the land that they're living on and the land that their ancestors uh, lived on. So yeah, Australian Aborigines, Australian natives, and we're talking about them first going into Australia, what, 60,000 years ago, when uh, the Europeans arrive, first of all, the Dutch and then the British. Hey, they resist. They don't welcome people coming in. Uh, same with the Maoris, same with everyone everywhere. And so, yes, when the whites come into um, you know, Northern America, uh, the Indians 
uh, revolt. But of course, what the civilized whites do is paint these people as savages and they paint them as irrational. Why can't they learn to live in peace uh, with us? Well, they don't live in peace with you because you keep taking the land. And that is uh, the rationality of Palestinian resistance that never, ever uh, appears uh, on the BBC. Um, so yeah, um, what we have, uh, uh, as we all know, is the most right-wing uh, government in Israel's history. That is saying something. I know it used to have a reputation of being a progressive uh, government when I was a lad. That's what my teachers used to tell me. The only real socialist country in the world is Israel. I reviewed that with contempt then, and I certainly view it with <laughs> contempt now because it doesn't pretend to be anything of the sort. Uh, now Israel is one of the most unequal societies um, uh, on uh, the planet, and it's got a government that are full of genuine, in my view, crazy, crazy politics. Um, you know, in, in, in that sense, Netanyahu and Likud uh, are on the sane wing um, of, this, uh, of this particular uh, government. But, the, but what we need to understand is, you know, the killings uh, that have taken place, the raids, the threat uh, to annex more land. Precisely that goes back to Labour Zionism. And although I think the uh, present government is capable of being more irrational, uh, nonetheless, I think you have to see it in the same frame as you would view every government in Israel going back to the first in 1948 uh, under Ben-Gurion. Um, will this lead to a wider conflict? It certainly has the potential because what we have is the breakdown of uh, the Vienna talks between uh, Israel, not Israel, excuse me, Iran, uh, and uh, is it the five plus one? Um, and all the rest of it. We also have um, ongoing drone warfare uh, between um, Israel and Iran, or is it the Houthis? You know, there's some deniability there. But we also have a situation uh, of where this government uh, under Netanyahu is committed uh, to further uh, annexations and certainly is committed to the rhetoric of hitting back uh, and retaliating hard. My own view, and I could be wrong, is I don't see the Netanyahu government uh, going uh, for a strike against Iran without the green light from the United States. And I don't see it going in for a whole big push, not little settlements here and little settlements there, but a whole big push uh, to take over uh, a new swathe of territory on the West Bank without the permission of the United States. I could be wrong. Um, you know, Netanyahu is under pressure from his right. Maybe he will react, maybe he will act unilaterally. I don't know. Uh, I'm skeptical uh, about that, but it could happen. Um, if that happens, of course, there will be Palestinian uh, resistance. Um, and the United States might issue quiet diplomatic threats um, of, um, you know, forcing Israel uh, to backtrack. Uh, after all, does it want, a you know, a third front opening up uh, in terms of global politics when it's already got Ukraine? Uh, it's already contemplating uh, a war uh, over the ta uh, Taiwan's uh, straits. Does it want a third um, regional uh, conflict um, on its hands? Well, my view would be no. Uh, on the other hand, look at Iran, how stable is it? Maybe this provides both the possibility of a regime change operation in Tehran um, and uh, a new round of ethnic cleansing in Israel, uh, Palestine. The key question, as far as we're concerned, though, uh, uh, is a regional uh, solution. Um, uh, unlike a lot of the left, 
uh, we do not commit ourselves to a single state solution because we view it as utopian. If you look at the position of the Palestinians today, roughly speaking, there are as many Palestinians as, as there are Israeli Jews. But when it comes to how many tanks, how many aircraft, how many nuclear weapons, uh, Israel is the Goliath here and uh, the Palestinians are the David. And I know in the Bible it's David that wins. But in the real world, usually it's Goliath uh, that actually bashes uh, um, uh, the Davids um, uh, of the world. Um, hence, we just don't see uh, a one state solution as viable because you have to ask who the hell is going to impose it? Who's going to ensure it? Well, the United States isn't. So who else? Uh, and the answer has to be nobody. Nobody can do it. And therefore, asking the Palestinians to do it is just an is just asking the impossible. They simply cannot do it. And you have to understand why their leadership went for a so-called two-state solution, which, of course, was a bogus solution. There's no way ever that the Israeli government of whatever coloration is going to tol tolerate a real state um, on the West Bank and Gaza, let alone one. Uh, that's joined up. That just is not going to happen. So again, you have to ask a one state solution imposed by who? Well, you might end up with a one state solution imposed by Israel. In other words, a greater Israel, but that would have to go hand in hand with a huge round of ethnic cleansing to ensure that you have a Jewish uh, majority in, in the lands that they annex. So if we take greater Israel, uh, that's not viable in terms of uh, electoral arithmetic, unless you have um, an extension of what you've got in the West Bank, which is an occupied territory uh, with Israeli Jews having the vote, uh, but Palestinians not having uh, the vote. That's possible. Uh, but you, when you read the Israeli press, uh, those that are bent on expansion also uh, link that with what they call the demographic time bomb in Israel itself and the necessity of clearing away um, unwanted uh, Palestinians. Okay. Um, we are going to come up with um, some articles in the weekly work on the whole question of uh, trans rights and uh, uh, this whole um, um, issue. Meanwhile, um, what we've got, I think, um, is a situation of where uh, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP government has been very wrong footed um, on this question. Um, I don't think myself that there's any evidence of Nicola Sturgeon moving forward this gender recognition bill, note bill, uh, because it was Article 35 uh, by the Westminster uh, government. It's not going to be signed into law uh, by His Majesty King Charles III. Uh, but what we've had, uh, of course, is a two thirds majority in um, Holyrood. I don't know the exact arithmetic. There was opposition in the SNP, uh, there was opposition in the Labour Party. Uh, either way, uh, what we had is a clear majority. Uh, the SNP, remember, this is a, a PR uh, parliament. The SNP doesn't have a majority. It has a majority with the Greens, uh, and it's only just a majority. So to have a two-thirds majority required people in the Labour Party voting for it, and they did. It requires Liberal Democrats voting for it, uh, and they did. Um, either way, it was Rishi Sunak um, and... Um, Bravman, isn't it? You know, Suella Bravman that saw their opportunity to fight a culture war, having seen off the SNP's uh, Indy 2 referendum, which I never thought was a runner, taken it to the Supreme Court. Wow. The Supreme Court announced, yeah, Scotland does, has no right to self-determination. Of course it hasn't. Under Tony Blair's legislation from 1988, uh, no, it cannot decide these things. Uh, to break away. That's uh, something that Westminster decide. Uh, what we've had is Rishi Sunak seeing an opportunity uh, to press home his advantage against the SNP 
And then we've had the accident of two cases. Let me get them right. Uh, first of all, we have Adam Graham, who's now known as Isla Bryson. And we also have Anthony, and my writing here isn't very good. Um, Burgess, is it? Anyway, uh, now known as Tiffany Scott. And we have these two cases. And precisely, okay, we know that the gender recognition bill uh, isn't law, but we precisely get into the, the debate of um, uh, someone who's been convicted uh, before um, uh, they got uh, gender reassigned, uh, being convicted, not yet sentenced for a, a double uh, rape, who ends up in a woman's prison, who's now been transferred to a men's prison. And we also have someone who was stalking a young teenage girl who was also in a woman's prison um, and now is in a men's uh, uh, prison. Um, and then you get into the debate. Well, what is a man? Is a man someone who just declares themselves a man? What's a woman? Is it just someone who declares themselves uh, uh, a woman? And certainly under um, existing legislation, you've got the intervention of doctors, you've got living in this particular um, um, identity. I don't know how long it is. Is it two years? Um, anyway, the, the Scottish legislation that would have been uh, considerably uh, reduces that. But what, what Rishi Sunak and Braverman recognized is here's a chance to conduct a culture war. And what we've seen is what would have been a marginal issue amongst the masses in Scotland to being something that's in the headlines that will have people talking in every bus queue, in every pub, around every breakfast and dinner table uh, throughout Scotland and for that matter, uh, throughout uh, the United Kingdom and, and the Sun, uh, the Express, uh, the Daily Mail, um, you know, um, the Murdoch um, TV, you name it, will be piling in um, on this question. And my guess would be uh, that when it comes to public opinion now in Scotland, what would have been a shrug of shoulders? Well, that's a funny piece of, you know, that sort of, well, I don't really now would be something that people would be making up their mind on. And my guess would be, uh, given the nature of these two particular cases, at the moment, public opinion would definitely be on the right uh, with the Tory government um, against uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Um, that can change, uh, but I don't see it happening uh, any time uh, quick. In other words, what I see is not out of any master plan of uh, Nicola Sturgeon walking into a trap. And um, as soon as she walked into it, then they went for her. And uh, my guess would be uh, that um, uh, the chances of Nicola Sturgeon fighting the next general election on an Indy 2 referendum will be very much clouded uh, by the trans question. And clearly the Tories in Scotland will be using the trans question in the same way that the Republicans uh, have used culture wars uh, in the United States uh, uh, against uh, the Democrat uh, uh, party. And we shouldn't, merely because we're talking about two people here, we shouldn't underestimate the importance in politics of symbols. And, you know, the, the symbol I, I will choose, but you could carry on and you could almost instantly create a very long list. But the one that comes to my mind instantly, for example, when it comes to 19th century French politics would be Dreyfus and the fact that French society split into anti and pro uh, Dreyfus camps. And it wasn't as neat as all progressives are for Dreyfus and all reactionaries are against him. Nonetheless, in, in the broadest possible brush, uh, that's what happened. Um, but on this question, uh, when it comes to trans rights, uh, things are a lot more complex because the Tories look like um, uh, over this particular question that they've got the ability to recruit a wide swathe of people that would describe themselves, for example, uh, as feminists, and they are uh, uh, feminists.
So this is a very complex uh, question. Anyway, we are going to have a series of articles in the Weekly Worker. I don't know how many, uh, but that will begin. Um, Touchwood, not by me, I hasten to add, uh, this, this week. February the 1st promises to be a day of mass strikes, not the uh, um, size of strikes uh, that was originally um, expected by many comrades on the left. Uh, nonetheless, it's very large numbers. I've got some figures here of who's coming out. Uh, it's expected that 300,000 teachers will come out, members of the NEU, National Education Union, plus uh, teachers in the EIS, that's in Scotland, the Education Institute of Scotland, 100,000 uh, PCS uh, uh, members, 15,000 ASLEF members, 70,000 UCU members, University College Union uh, members, uh, plus some members uh, of the RMT. And of course, what this cries out for is coordination. Of course, it, you well understand why the Royal College of Nursing, uh, for example, uh, wants to be treated as a, a special case. Uh, we need a situation where unison uh, nurses um, unite, uh, ambulance workers are arguing uh, with RCN uh, uh, nurses who they work alongside in, in hospitals and other such facilities, the need for coordination and the need for coordination, not only between health workers, but joining together with all workers. And we need to be putting forward class demands here. After all, what section of the working class really deserves a pay cut? That's what the government is demanding of these workers, either directly employed by the government or indirectly employed by the government, such as, for example, on the rails. We all know that uh, the rails are subsidised. We all know that it's the government decides what uh, the companies will be offering in terms of pay, uh, in terms of hours, in terms of conditions, in terms of weekend working and all the rest of it. This isn't simply the employer. It's not just the government. It's not just uh, yeah the, the employers. It's the government uh, that's involved here. So we need a class demand. And we also need to be politicizing this because they are doing it. The government is doing it with its threats uh, to make uh, Britain's draconian anti-trade union laws even more draconian, new levels of um, ballots, uh, threat of um, legal uh, sanctions on union funds, the threat of sacking workers uh, who don't comply with minimum service levels, you name it, this is the threat uh, from the government. So we need to be fighting uh, against um, 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 these anti-trade union laws, but all uh, anti-trade uh, union laws. Uh, we need to be coordinating. And if the TUC doesn't do it, uh, then we need the unions involved in these disputes doing it, but also appealing for others to actually break uh, existing laws uh, that outlaw solidarity uh, strikes. So we want a situation of where, for example, yeah, uh, ambulance workers do provide some sort of minimum service uh, cover, but they do it under workers' control. And other workers who benefit from the fact that ambulance workers will go to a 999 call, they do their bit to support ambulance workers by coming out in solidarity. Uh, with ambulance workers, with nurses, uh, you know, with ancillary staff, uh, you know, with um, radiographers and all the rest of it. Uh, we want a class uh, response to what is an attack on our class. Meanwhile, yes, Kevin, uh, I did catch up uh, with, is it today's news or is it yesterday's? I'm not quite sure, but yeah, the sacking of the chair uh, of the Tory party, uh, Nadim Zahawi. Uh, I thought myself that he was toast as soon as we had the evidence of the head of the uh, HMRC, uh, His Majesty's Customs and Revenue, or is it the other way around? Anyway, whatever the thing was called, testifying in uh, Westminster, basically saying, look, we don't impose 
a fine on someone if they've made an accidental uh, error. In other words, if the error is made in good faith, uh, we don't impose. I thought last week it was a million quid fine. Turns out to be a five million quid fine. Now, I don't think it was um, Nadim uh, himself, although he might have, um, you know, ticked it off. Clearly, it's his uh, lawyers uh, and his accountants that thought that they could get away with it. Either way, uh, if they were ignorant of the law, that is no excuse. And they clearly been caught out. And under those circumstances, what we've heard is that uh, he's broken the ministerial code, which is you're meant to have your, uh, you know, financial affairs, you know, um, above question. Uh, that's my understanding uh, of it. So the fact that uh, Rishi Sunak defended um, uh, uh, Nadim for so long, uh, I think, says a great deal. Um, what exactly, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, it does say something about the information that civil servants and political allies uh, are coming forward with um, to him. But it also surely says something about him himself, because what we had is the richest couple. Well, he's you can't have a couple in Parliament, but you know what I mean. Richie Sunak um, is the richest person, if we include his wife in the house. In the House, I think I think that both includes the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Either way, he's in the sort of billionaire uh, class. And of course, what we had is his wife not paying UK taxes, uh, but paying Indian uh, taxes instead. And, and of course, then she discovers, oh, well, I think I'll be generous uh, and pay British taxes. Well, the reason why she decided to become generous is this became a public issue became a political hot potato. In other words, what we're dealing with here um, is a government that is corrupt and it's corrupt through and through. We've seen that under Cameron. Do you remember, I mean, what was it called? Grenfell or you remember the, um, the Panama Papers? We all, none of us can forget Boris Johnson. And we now know about the 800,000 pound um, you know, loan guarantee arranged by his um, mate, uh, who then was appointed uh, the uh, chair of the BBC. We all know about the wallpaper. I'm not going to go into it, but we all know uh, the stories. We all know about Baroness Moon and is it 29 million profit out of PPE uh, equipment? No, this government stinks. And uh, I'm not saying, by the way, uh, that the Labour Party is squeaky clean. After all, we've had these stories about mystery donations to right-wing um, members of the shadow cabinet, not least uh, Yvette uh, uh, Cooper. Lastly, um, London Labour Party conference. Now, I haven't seen TV pictures of this, and I don't know whether the TV crews are allowed to turn around um, and actually look at an audience. I've only listened to it on the radio. There's Keir Starmer's speech and you hear clapping on the BBC. Um, I didn't hear any booing. I didn't hear any heckling. I suspect there wasn't any booing or heckling. You might have had people sitting there with their arms folded. I don't know. Either way, the message was clear. I'm ready for government. The shadow cabinet is ready for government. Um, we're going to be a safe pair of hands. What was the message? Sound money. Unlike this crazy lot uh, uh, under Liz Trust that crashed the economy, uh, we're going to put uh, the country first, not party first. We're going to put sound money first, not uh, ideology. It's that sort of message. But also note um, the bit of his speech where he promised that his leadership would uh, fight discrimination and never stop fighting discrimination. And we all know what that is about. It's not about uh, uh, anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism. That was a big lie, always was a big lie, continues to be a big lie. That is code. That's code for attacking anything 
on the left. And I do mean anything um, on uh, the left. Um, hence, we've got a situation uh, of where momentum, campaign for Labour Party democracy, the Labour Representation Committee, these sort of organisations basically keep their heads well down, uh, don't fight and will not fight uh, against the witch hunt. And what goes for these organisations goes double for those miserable careerists in the so-called socialist, so-called campaign uh, group of so-called left-wing uh, 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 MPs. And of course, the reason why they don't put their heads above the parapet uh, is they know that as soon as they do, uh, they will be shot down. And that's the promise that Keir Starmer uh, is making. And he's basically saying that the Labour Party is not only going to be pro-Israel, it's going to be pro-NATO. So anyone who gets out of line, as members of the Socialist Campaign Group did, will be threatened with the whip being withdrawn. Now, I'm told uh, that in Islington North at the moment, uh, there are preparations uh, going ahead uh, for selecting an MP because there's no uh, MP at the moment from Islington North who is a member of the parliamentary uh, Labour Party. And there's some local objections because of course, what uh, um, Victoria Street, i.e. Labour Party HQ, is doing is getting them to select another candidate. And clearly it's not going to be Jeremy Corbyn. There's no way Jeremy Corbyn's going to be let back in to the parliamentary uh, uh, Labour Party. Uh, and indeed, if Islington North rebels and decides to defy uh, Labour HQ, I tell you what will happen. Uh, it will be disbanded. Uh, it's true uh, that what operates in the Labour Party today is a McCarthyite regime, whereas I understand it if you get up in a CLP and you say Jeremy Corbyn and you say something about him that's good, um, that is an expulsion um, offence. And therefore, most uh, choose to keep their heads down or they simply slink away and... Um, join a picket line or something like that. And I just wanted um, to finish with this, that I was reading the article in uh, this week's uh, paper, what's the title of it? Um, from Admit, Admits the Wreckage, and I think that's a well-chosen um, um, headline. Any idea uh, that momentum, that the LRC, that the Socialist Campaign Group any idea that these people will fight is utterly and totally illusory. If they were going to fight, uh, they would have fought years ago and you could have put up a gallant fight. But of course, what happened with the witch hunt is that sections of the left joined in on the witch hunt. And that included the top, that included Jeremy Corbyn. And of course, we ran with the headline quoting or adapting that famous poem, uh, by Pastor Niemeyer. Um, first they came for the communists, then they came for, and et cetera. And when they came for me, there was no one left. And we had a picture of Jeremy. First they came for Mark Wadsworth, then they came for Jackie Walker, then they came for Stanley Keeble, et cetera. And then when they came for me, they were, well, it's not quite true that there's no one left apart from Jeremy Corbyn. But in to all intents and purposes, that was a uh, truth. And of course, what we've argued from the very beginning, uh, way before uh, Jeremy Corbyn's um, leadership of the Labour Party, is while we are committed and we remain committed because of the nature of the Labour Party, the history, the structure of the Labour Party to transforming it, one, we're not reliant on that. And crucially, uh, what we say is that that can only happen on the basis of building a sizable, and indeed I would argue a mass communist party, a mass communist party that has serious support um, in the trade union movement, serious support uh, amongst the masses. Only then does it become feasible to envisage transforming the Labour Party. Those comrades on the left that thought some you know, ginger group or, or some get together of uh, the official left 
or some unofficial labor group. No, that was all, all delusional uh, and a diversion uh, indeed from the key task uh, that exists today. Lenin used to bang on about, didn't he, that an analogy of his, uh, the key thing in politics is to grasp the main link. And the main link in politics today is the lack of a communist party. And we're talking about a real communist party. That is the main question. That is the only serious question uh, that we're faced with today, because without that, we can't do anything. We can comment, and that's important. We can outline principles. We can defend principles. That's true. But in terms of actually changing the world, actually making a real difference, the instrument we need is a communist party.